Today's sermon will be in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 7 through chapter 2, verse 13. Uh, If you have your Bible, please follow along with me. If not, you can follow on the screen behind me. Hear the word of God. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shebat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered, The angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry, but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns, And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is the width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up. Escape to Zion, you who dwell with with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you 
For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and I shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. The word of God. Thank you, brother. All right, children, off you go, so that you can go and hear from the word of the Lord uh, yourselves. And uh, as they go, let me, uh, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We pray that you would speak to us through it. God, help us to see your justice and help us to see the joy that is found in your land. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, well, on September the 11th, 2001, I was 26 years old. Uh, I remember it vividly that day, and I remember it vividly largely because of the way that I felt um, that day. We felt as though many of us that were there were alive at the time and very aware of the things that were going on. We felt as though we'd been sort of struck in the mouth without even noticing it, and we wanted something to be done. Um, that was sort of the collective sentiment of the day. I mean, there's some 3,000 people had died that day. The World Trade Towers had collapsed that day. Uh, there was a big hole in the Pentagon. Um, we'd heard about this plan to attack the White House. Nobody was looking for it. We're sucker punched. Our guard was down. We got hit. And there was a collective sentiment that day, at least I felt, uh, that would be summarized in the word justice. We wanted something to be done for what had been done to our country. And that night on September the 11th, I remember everybody being glued to the television, not just to see the news that was coming out of New York and D.C., but we had heard, we'd gotten rumor that there was going to be some sort of retributive justice on some Middle Eastern outposts, and we watched the TV to see it happen, because we all wanted it to happen, kind of swing back, as it were. Even a few days after the attack, President George W. Bush was visiting the wreckage there in New York, and uh, he was standing on a pile of rubble, and he spoke to the aid workers that were there, and he spoke through a bullhorn, and some of the people couldn't hear him in the back. And uh, President Bush said to them, well, I can hear you. And there was sort of a rise, a sort of metaphorical rise, and the president sort of seizing the moment. He says, not only do I uh, hear you, the whole world hears you, and the people that did what they did to make these buildings collapse, they will hear from you soon enough. And everybody just collectively sort of said yes. Because again, there was this desire for justice to be done. And I think that notion of justice is universal, isn't it? There's all aspects of justice. Every single one of us has some level of justice in which we desire in our own personal lives or corporate lives. Uh, there's a woman by the name of Sojourner Truth that once said, truth burns up air. And all of us have experienced a lot of air and we want it burned up by the truth. We want justice to be served. But I think we also find that it's not just justice that we want, right? We also want something else. We also want joy. Unhindered joy. We all want a world... Justice where the wrongdoers are dealt with. And we also want a world wherein we feel safe, we feel loved, we feel comforted. Justice to the evildoers and safety and comfort to everyone in a world of love. Isn't that exactly what everybody on planet Earth wants? Those two things. 
Well, friends, this is exactly what God promises us here in the book of Zechariah. We're going to see this morning both of these themes. As we continue in our series, we're going to see the God of justice and the God of unhindered joy. That's what we'll consider the two points this morning. Uh, Just in terms of setting up the context of the passage here, uh, again, the events of Zechariah are are occurring at the tail end of the Old Testament uh, and Old Testament history. So by this point, Israel had been redeemed from Egypt. They'd been led into the land. They had built the temple. They had established kings only to presume upon the grace of God by their half-hearted obedience, which, of course, is full-hearted disobedience. Uh, They had begun getting comfortable, um, and then they began to worshiping idols uh, at the same time of trying to take the name of God. So God then sent them prophets like Habakkuk and Isaiah and Ezekiel calling them to repentance. And they sort of, though, even though in light of all these prophets showing up and calling them to repentance, nevertheless, they still sort of kept showing up to church, not changing, taking the Lord's Supper and living how they please the rest of the week. And so eventually God had to discipline them by doing as he did with Adam and Eve, exiling them from the promised land, exiling them from his presence. And so he told them he would exile them. Jeremiah told him that he would exile them some 70 years. You can see that reflected there in verse 12 of chapter 1. And now some 42,000 Israelites have uh, streamed back into Jerusalem, the beleaguered city. The temple is still torn down. Uh, And God had sent them after they had got there. God sent them prophets because they had gotten work, started work on that temple. Then they stopped the work. So God then sends them three more prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Uh, that are calling them to rebuild the temple and live in faithfulness to God. And so, but after all of this, after some calls for repentance to return to the Lord, we saw this last week, Zechariah 1, 1 to 6. We see from Zechariah 1, 6, they evidently had seen that their uh, forefathers, and by extension themselves, they had failed to listen to the word of God. And so they repent, uh, we see in verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 6, which means they agree uh, that they have sinned, and they intend to live in a different way. And so what follows now in this passage is three visions given to the prophet Zechariah uh, in response to that evident repentance. He's going to give them even more than they had thought. So three um, visions this this day in this text. So two points. First point, again, God of justice. God of justice. When we look down there at verse 7, we get a very specific piece of information uh, as to when all of this is happening. Now, I call that out, guys, because it's important for us to see. Uh, It's uh, important for us to see because it builds our confidence in the Word of God. The events of the Bible did not happen in a vacuum or uh, sort of started like they did in secret in other false religions like Joseph Smith or Muhammad may have started in secret. These things happen in secret. But instead, the events of the Bible are happening very uh, publicly, very historically, verifiably. This we see happens on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat in the second year of Darius. The Bible, friends, couldn't be more open, more honest, more specific to test it to see if it's true. And so we know exactly when this happened. This happened on February the 19th in the year 519 B.C. The word of the Lord comes to Zechariah and his in this first vision involves a man in verse 8 that is later said to be the angel of the Lord in verse 11. Now, the angel of the Lord is a mysterious figure that shows up at critical portions of the Old Testament. We know uh, that the word angel means messenger. So this is a messenger of the Lord. And this same angel of the Lord sees Hagar back in the events of Genesis 16, where Hagar understands herself, same angel of the Lord, understands herself to have seen God. 
Same thing when Jacob wrestles the angel of the Lord in Genesis 32. Jacob also recognizes that he saw God face to face. So you have a messenger of the Lord that poses as a man yet is the Lord. Who might this be? Well, we have reason to believe this is the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity. But this angel of the Lord is with three other horsemen, we see. So there's four horsemen here. They're riding different color horses. And Zechariah appropriately asked the angel in verse 9, What are these, my Lord? Don't you love when the Bible asks the same questions you're asking? You know, what in the world is this? So we get the answer to that question in verses 9 to 17. The angel, the angel answers and says, These are they who went out to patrol the earth. Now, typically in Scripture, when we see the number four and the earth together, that normally means they've gone to the four corners of the earth. And they found, verse 11, that all the earth was at rest. And so what is it intended to be communicated by a world at rest is not the world was peaceful. Everything was good. It's actually entirely the opposite. What is being communicated here is exactly what we see in so many of the Psalms. The enemies of God and God's people are living it up doing as they please and not caring about anything. They are at rest from any concern about the holiness of God. And we know that that's what it means because of what he said in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1. And here the Lord of hosts speak. We understand this to be the Father. This repeated reference to the Lord of hosts is referencing his strength, his might. Uh, Says verse 15, the Lord says, I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they, are fur- they have furthered the disaster. Now this does not mean, friends, that the nations are more powerful than the will of God. What the Lord is saying here is that He was angry with His people for a short time. That is, He judged them for a short time. The destruction of Jerusalem and then the exile. But the nations, or in particular Babylon, furthered that disaster. They went beyond what God had ordained. That is, they went beyond the intentions of God's discipline on His people. So, in other words, just to give you an illustration of sort of what happened here, this would be sort of like, imagine you're having a child, and that child, you find out, steals a taco from District Taco. Okay? And you go back up to the District Taco, and you confess the sin to them, and they rightfully administer some kind of justice, and they make them go back and wash the dishes. That would be an appropriate administer of justice. But then you sort of go off and go on your way to you know, do some other errands and you come back and you find your son or daughter sitting on the curb and what you find out is is not only did they wash the dishes, but they had to take out the trash. They made fun of. They were mocked the whole time. Uh, they had to do all kinds of terrible things in addition to washing the dishes. right? And you would say they went beyond what they intended in the discipline, right? That's what's happening. That's what's happening here. It was right to have your child disciplined, but the people disciplining them went beyond your intentions. And so, like you would be angry for them going too far, so God is angry with the nations for going too far with His people. And more so, we see He is angry because they are at ease about going too far. So they don't seem to care about the Lord's intentions, and in fact, they seem to enjoy kicking God's people around and living the high life. And as we will see in chapter 2, verse 8, while they are disobedient kids, these people, the Israelites, they are His disobedient kids. And He's rightly, God is rightly ticked off. And we see there in verse 14 that the Lord is exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. He loves His rowdy, disobedient kids. And He's not going to stand for this. 
And so God won't be at ease while they are at ease about taking advantage of his intentions of his people. And so he's going to do something about it, which leads to the second vision in verses 18 to 21. So Zechariah sees four horns here. And yet again, Zechariah asks the question that we're asking, right? What in the world are these four horns? Same questions he asks. Uh, horns normally refer to the power of the peoples of the nations, much like the horn of an animals, animals used as a weapon. You can see that reflected there in the angel of the Lord's response in verse 19. These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. In other words, the four horns are referencing the people that have gone too far in hurting God's people. And then we get in the image, uh, these four craftsmen, they enter into the vision. And again, Zechariah asks what? What are these? Right? Verse 21 Uh, It says there, these have come to terrify them to cast down the horns of the nations against the land of Judah to scatter it. In other words, God was going to punish the nations for how they treated the land of Judah. So when we see these two visions, we pull them together. What we see happening here is justice. Justice. God was going to bring justice or as Sojourner Truth says, truth was going to burn up air. But there's one strange thing about this passage when you slow down and think about it. The Babylonians were among the horns that God used to discipline Judah, right? But how is God going to administer justice to the Babylonians when at this time in which Zechariah is preaching, the Babylonians had already been conquered? So did the Assyrians and the like. We have to remember at the time of this, right? Ezra is gone in. He was sent by a Persian king, Cyrus. Persians were the ones that overcame the Babylonians. So why the call to have the craftsmen administer justice to a people that had already been defeated? Well, that question directs us to the point of this vision. Look back at verse 15 of chapter 1 and notice it is not just the Babylonians that's being referenced there. It's the nations. The nations. And look forward to chapter 2, verse 8 to 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, it says, After his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Such a beautiful truth we'll come back to later. Behold, I will shake my hand over them and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. So there's an emphasis not only on Babylon, but on the nations that touch the apple of God's eye. So, In other words, friends, Babylon is representative of any nation, of any people that harms his people. Babylon is frequently references even hundreds of years later in the book of Revelation. We find happening, which of course at that point, it's long been since defeated. It's as a way, it's there to indicate all those who, uh, all those people that were harming God's elect are going to receive judgment. Now you'll see this more on the second point, but Zechariah is speaking about the events that are going to take well into the future. So this isn't merely a prophecy for people living in 519 B.C. Zechariah, we see, is looking, as it says in chapter 2, verse 11, to a future day, in that day. So God, friends, is making a global statement of judgment, not just a regional one. You touch His people. You touch His kids. You touch Him. Whenever someone goes beyond his wishes and sits at ease about it all, the justice of God will roll down like a river, as Amos says. 
Zechariah is teaching us here that the Lord of hosts will bring justice to any nation, any people that harms his people. Or to put a New Testament verse on this, Romans 12, 19. Beloved, so this is to the beloved, this is to God's people in Christ. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So Zechariah is teaching the same thing the book of Revelation teaches, as we'll see even more. It's teaching us that God will bring justice on anyone that is evil and goes beyond his purposes in the world and just sits at ease about it all. No one will get away with it in the end. Now, I realize that when I talk about these kinds of things, there are some that don't like this part of the character of God. God's anger, that is, that sort of then enacts justice on people. This side of God is something some want to apologize for or even rescue God from. Oh, he's not saying that. Or some want to dismiss it entirely by saying, well, I believe in the God of the New Testament, not the God of the Old Testament. Or I believe in Jesus, as if Jesus was in some ways distracted or disassociated from the Old Testament. And friends, I think the reason why we might say this, why you might say this, is because we all want to associate God with love and patience and kindness. And not hate and anger, as we see here. We think about this when we look around at the bumper stickers in our city. So often we see that phrase, God is love, not hate. Or we see sometimes the phrase, love is greater than hate. Sometimes you'll see t-shirts or stickers that make love and hate look like they're opposed to one another. But friend, here's the thing. In order for God to be love, He must hate anything that would harm what He loves. Love and hate in that way need each other. Otherwise, he couldn't be love if he just let that which he loved be attacked and harmed. You cannot have love without having hate. And when something harms, brings harm upon that which God loves, God, of course, is angered and he has hate because of his love. This then gives rise right to justice. Justice is hate serving the proper punishment to that which harmed which God loves. And this is what, again, justice is all about. Justice is rooted in the love of God. The two are not opposed to one another, as our culture would have us to understand. So just think about it this way. I love my kids very, very much. And I'm going to hate anything that tries to hurt my kids. And if somebody does hurt my kids, what am I going to expect on them that hurt them? Some form of justice, right? So I'm going to be angry about it. and I'm going to want to have something be dealt with between those two instances. And this is natural, this desire for justice, this desire, uh, this anger that leads to justice. It's natural, and it's natural, friends, because we were made in the image of God. You want love and justice, friend, because you were supposed to. You were made in the image of God. And so take heart, your desire for love and justice are right. They are there because you were created in the image of God. So you naturally get upset about that which is wrong, about the things that you love when they get hurt, and you naturally want justice for wrongdoing because you're trying to promote and protect that which you love. That's all in you because God gave it to you to tell you something about Himself. Just think back to that notion of desire of justice on 9-11. Same kind of idea. It's desire for you get angry and you want something to be served. But here's the million-dollar question. Dare I ask it? If we are created in the image of God, and this explains why we want love and justice, 
question then is, do we want justice to come to us? It's easy to want justice to be served to anyone that hurts us or those we love. But what about us? If we are created in the image of God that explains why we want justice, have we been just ourselves? And if not, shouldn't God's justice come upon us? See, the Lord of hosts says in this passage that he intends to terrify, to cast down those that have lifted up their hands against his people. And so have we lifted up our hands against his people? Have we lived perfectly, displaying the love of God, the character of God, the will of God? I think we all know the answer, don't we? We can't even live up to our own expectations, much less God's. So we want justice on evildoers, and we should. We agree that God is just and that He should exact His justice on them. But what if our calls for justice indict ourselves? See, friends, I think we're all too busy, myself included, we're all too busy condemning others to not slow down and ask the penetrating question ourselves. Are we Babylon? Didn't we go too far? And therefore, don't we deserve the justice of God? See, the Bible is clear and our expectations are clear. We, uh, our expectations and our experiences confirm it. That we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all, in that sense, Babylon. We want to quickly place ourselves in Jerusalem when in fact our native land, our tribe, our people is the guilty Babylonians who sit at ease after going beyond what is written in God's Word. We may not have destroyed God's temple. We may not have exiled Judah, but we have lied. We have cheated, we have slandered, we have gossiped, we have mocked. In some ways, we have all been Babylon to Jerusalem. Not just once, but more times than many of us can count, myself included. And so facts are stubborn. And the fact is, we stand under the judgment of God. Our sense of justice knows this to be true. And so we ask the question, what do we do with that? Look down at chapter 2, verse 13. This is an ominous sign there. Be silent, note the word, all flesh before the Lord, for He has roused Himself from His holy dwelling. In other words, He's about to bring the thunder and we stand to receive it. So until you feel this tension, friend, you will never be awakened from your ease. Until you know what you deserve, you will never call out for grace from God. See, everybody loves to talk about how kind Jesus was, rightfully so. People love to point to the Sermon on the Mount and talk about how great it is. But I I wonder if you've ever actually studied the Sermon on the Mount. So often what he's doing in that whole sermon is condemning us, helping us see that we can't do it. Obey the law. That's the whole point of that sermon. So in the same way, Jerusalem deserved justice from God when Babylon came and destroyed them and drugged them away. And Babylon deserved justice for going too far in that judgment and sitting at ease afterwards. And we all deserve justice for being like Jerusalem and like Babylon, going too far and sitting at ease in the world. And that, friends, is why God sent His Son. To rescue us. To administer justice. And at the same time, rescuing us. In Christ, God is both the just and the justifier to the one that believes. 
Jesus was innocent. He was the only one that didn't deserve the justice of God from the Father. And yet he gave his life as a ransom for those that would believe. He absorbed the wrath. He absorbed the anger of God for all that we have done wrong. He was buried and rose from the dead to illustrate that he defeated sin and death. And so Christ the just satisfies the anger of God against our sin, justifying the one that dies to self and lives to Christ. So God's justice is satisfied in the redeemed in Christ. Therefore, his anger no longer burns against the one that repents and believes. Meaning, now we that believe, now we are the children. We've been transferred from Babylon into Jerusalem. We are now the apple of his eye. And so much more as we will see. So friends, we were Babylon and now we are Jerusalem that believe because of Jesus the just. Jesus the just became Babylon so that we who were Babylon might become Jerusalem. The happy home of God. And so let me stop here though for a moment and address those of you that still reside in Babylon. And are living at ease in the world. Caring little for your sin. Caring little for the anger of God against you. Friend, if you have not trusted or are trusting in the finished work of Christ alone to save you, you are Babylon and you stand to satisfy the justice of God yourself. You have to make the payment. John 3.36 is crystal. This comes right after, by the way, John 3.16. God so loved the world. It's crystal. And it says that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath or the anger of God remains on him. See, in love, God satisfies his justice for those that trust and follow Jesus. But friend, if you choose to reject the biblical Jesus, as is evidenced by your not obeying him, the wrath of God, the justice of God remains upon you to pay. Therefore, an eternity apart from his love awaits you in hell. And you have to make that payment yourself. But it doesn't have to be that way. If you repent of sins, you take up Christ and follow Him, God's justice for you will be satisfied. And you will know life eternal. This is why you need Him as a substitute. In Christ, His uh, righteousness, His justice is satisfied. This is God's gracious gift to the world. It's the way that He's recreating the world. And so friend, repent. Repent. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Know His love that was satisfied on your behalf so that you might then be empowered to live for Him. He's worth it. He's worth it. That He would do that reveals that He's worth it. He's worth walking away from ever those things that might, you might be at ease with. Take up Christ and follow Him. And to those of you that do believe, members of Restoration Church, <laughs> I wondered at this verse all week. We, that's right, me and you, are now the apple of God's eye. Stunning reality. We are now the apple of God's guy and therefore we can trust, listen, we can trust that God sees 
all the wrongdoing that has occurred or is occurring or will occur in your life or in our life together. He sees it all, right? He sends the patrols out. They see it. They report. He sees it all. And not only does he see it, he promises here he will repay. He will repay either in Christ or in his judgment. When something goes bad in our life, in particular, when an enemy does something that hurts us, our sense of justice rightly rises up. We want someone to repay the person for what they have done wrong, and we should. And we, take, we can take peace in the fact that while it seems like our enemies are living at ease, doing as they please, God sees it. He sees it. We know from this passage that he does see it, and we know from this passage he promises that justice will be served. And so all who are his, who are the apple of his eye, listen, we are his children. Therefore, anyone that messes with us, messes with our father, and they will get repaid. Take peace in that. Recall Jesus' words to Saul when he was on the road to Damascus to hurt more Christians. What does he say to him? Why do you persecute who? Me. To persecute his people is to persecute him. He's going to deal with it. When they touch you, They are touching him and he sees and he will administer justice. If I have jealousy for anybody that would hurt my kids, how much more God who sent his son to make me his. No one will get away with it. They will be repaid for what they've done to his people. Now it's clear sometimes God uses the government to administer his justice. God tells us in Romans 13 that government has been given the power of the sword to administer justice which means they have a right to have a police uh, force, to have courts, to have an army, things like this, to establish wrong and to punish wrongdoers. So in that sense, that's why God established government, to administer His justice while on the current earth. And so we can take peace that when the government does its job and properly administers justice, it's doing what God made it to do. God, that's God serving His justice. How can we be sure when all that's happening exactly? We can't. We trust that God sees it. It'll be done rightly. But you say, well, Nathan, what about the plenty of times when the government gets it wrong? What about that? Well, then, in that case, we certainly have God's eternal justice that steps in. Hebrews 9.27 says, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Everyone will be judged, and those who have been found to have not washed their robes in the atoning blood of Christ as is evidenced by their unrepentant sin and approving of what is evil, God sees it and they will face payment from God for their sins. They will receive justice. Guys, we've got to remember this. Heaven is, de- is undeserved by everybody that goes there. But hell is deserved by anyone that goes there. Wicked governments, evil parents, Boyfriends, girlfriends, family members, neighbors, no matter their confession, if they choose to approve what is evil, not turn from what they've done wrong, the four craftsmen we see will administer the justice of God upon them. Or as it says in Zechariah 2.9, I will shake my hand over them and they shall become plunder. Because anyone that touches the apple of his eye, the redeemed, they touch him. Take peace in that, Christian. Take peace. So from the systematic injustices of the past and the present, Uh, Things like chattel slavery, Jim Crow, lynchings, internment camps of Asian Americans during World War II, to segregation of Hispanics and other minorities up to today. They don't have the last answer. God sees and He will mete out those wrongs. All the way down to even personal injustices. Abuse, 
false teaching, favoritism, mockings, and especially as Joey prayed this morning for persecution for his righteousness sake, which happens everywhere all the time. You are right to be incensed about these things and we are right even to do the hard work of trying to educate and push back those injustices. But we can do that while having peace to know God will have the last word. God sees these things and He will deal with these things in this life or the next. Because, as it says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. And this passage shows us that God is angered at a world full of ease at their injustices. He sees it. He's not absent. And we who are in Christ can take peace in that knowledge, knowing that He will bring the proper justice in the proper time in the proper way. But as I mentioned, there's more than that. We don't just want justice. We also want what else? Unhindered joy. It's not enough to just have the wrongdoers be paid for. We want joy. It's the second thing we see in this passage. Unhindered joy comes to those that love Him. That apple of His eye. So not only does the world cry out for justice, as we see, the world also cries out for safety, for comfort, for unhindered joy. And that's exactly what the Lord promises us in this passage. So in verse 12, the angel of the Lord asked the Lord of hosts, the Father, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the city of Judah? You see that there in verse 12? And in verse 13, the Lord answered gracious and comforting words. Wouldn't you love to know what he said there? Well, we're... We at least get a hint as to what those words might have, the Lord might have said to the angel. Because in verse 16, right after that, after the Lord talks about his anger at the sinful ease of the nations, the Lord says, I have returned to Jerusalem. Now remember from last week, the Lord invited, remember that? Return to me and I will return to you. So it seems as though he's returning. The apparent repentance indicates the Lord's return. So here we see, we find that I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house, it says in verse 16, shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My city shall again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And this is not new news, by the way, guys. We find the former prophets of old, Isaiah, saying the exact same thing. God is faithful to His promises. Though they, though we, have rebelled against Him, not only does He do good for His people, He not only repays those that have done wrong, but most of all, He chooses His people again in grace and in mercy. So a temple is going to be rebuilt. But friends, even that is not the best news. Chapter 2, remember, is all about a future day. So that third vision comes. The third vision comes in Zechariah in chapter 2. And Zechariah sees a man with a measuring line. He's going to measure Jerusalem. And the angel of the Lord stops him in verse 4 and says, this is an amazing verse, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of the people and the livestock in it. In other words, Jerusalem will be so big that it cannot be measured. Don't, don't even bother measuring it. It's going to be so big. So many people are going to be in it. So much livestock. So many resources are going to be in it. And even that is not all. Here's the best part. Verse 5. And I will be to her, Jerusalem, a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. 
Guys, this is the storyline of the Bible. This is what we're reading. Basically, the entire Bible is summarized in these two chapters. The storyline of Scripture. God dwelling with His people in His place for His glory, for His people's good forever. That's happening right here. Remember, Adam and Eve had that. They were, they had God with, they were in the presence of God in His place, under His rule and blessing, and then they lost it. And they got sent out. And then God did the same thing. He didn't give up on His dream to have His people in His place under His glory. So He gives it to Abraham and His offspring. Gives it to Israel. And He gives them His law. He brings them into the place. Puts His presence in there. And they fail. They lost it. They get exiled. God doesn't give up on his dream. He still keeps going. He will establish a new Jerusalem. He promises uh, the people here that all the people that are living at ease about my law and about my people, living however they please, doing whatever they want, God's people struggle. He will exile them. He will serve justice to them. He will serve uh, uh, justice to Babylon. And he will establish a new Jerusalem. A new Jerusalem, a Jerusalem that will be so big that you can't even measure it. A Jerusalem that will have a wall of fire around it to protect it and the glory of God in the midst of it. The new Jerusalem, God's people in God's place for God's forever glory and God's people's forever good. How do we respond to that? Verse 10, take a look. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. That's how we rejoice. We sing, we rejoice that God's doing this. Amen. And watch this. This is when we, Gentile people enter the story of the Bible. Remember, up until this point in Zechariah, God's work among the nations had been largely limited to the Jews. You get some, a couple of other incidences where that's not the case, but largely limited to the Jews. And in this future day, we read verse 11, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day. Note that it doesn't say and join themselves to Israel. It says join themselves to the Lord in that day. And shall be my people, it says, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know the Lord, and the, and the, and the, you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The Lord has, the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Remember who's talking here? It's the angel of the Lord. So, so it says, Gentiles will be joined to the Lord in this future day, and we will know this happens when the angel of the Lord has been sent to his people. We, when we might say, when Christ comes. Christ the Lord has been sent to purchase and then gather His people to the new Jerusalem. Verse 12, And the Lord will inherit Judah as His portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. This is the new Jerusalem. A holy land as opposed to the former and even current land that remains unholy. This Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem. So large it is immeasurable due to the people and resources in it from all over the nations. So protected because the Lord has put a wall of fire around it. So beautiful, so wonderful because the Lord is sitting in the middle of it. This, guys, is our great desire, right? The country that we desire, the home that we want. And once again, God will be with His people in a better Eden, in a better Jerusalem, with Babylon out and us completely in that don't deserve it by God's grace and for His glory. And I wonder, as I sort of rehearse this, does this sound at all familiar to any of you? Can you think of maybe another passage in the Bible, for those of you that know the storyline of Scripture, can you think of another passage in Scripture where this might be talked about? Maybe another echo. Flip to the end of the Bible. You'll see almost the exact same words. Revelation chapter 21. Almost identical. <laughs> Revelation 21, verse 1 says this. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem. Hello. Coming where? Down out of heaven from God. Down from heaven to the earth. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Same language. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water. Listen to this, without payment, right? Because Christ has done it. The one who conquers will have this heritage. Jerusalem will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Another way of saying, and he will be the apple of my eye. Those that live there. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, uh, as for the murders, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolatries, and all, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's Babylon. They're outside, wall of fire here to protect the news Jerusalem. Babylon gone. Then, just after this, in verse 22 and 27 of Revelation 1, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. This is exactly why, by the way, when people, when, Je- when Jesus calls himself the temple, I'll tear this thing down and raise it up in three days. You've lost your mind. I'm the temple, right? And he's the temple in the New Jerusalem. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and, the, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the, here's the language, by its light will the nations walk. Same language of Zechariah. And the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and and the honor of the nations. There it is again. But nothing unclean will enter ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Babylon out. Same language. Same promises. Zechariah is talking about them long before. Christ has secured it. The ease of the nations who care nothing for God or His people put outside. Four craftsmen come in, they knock down the horns. God placing a wall of fire around it in the New Jerusalem to protect us. The New Jerusalem filled with the nations and most of all filled with the glory of God as He dwells with His people yet again in unhindered joy as heaven comes down to earth. There's no need to measure Jerusalem because it'll be the earth. No more need of a temple, for the Lord is with us. No more need of tears, no death, unhindered joy. All bought how? By the blood of Christ, the Lamb, true Israel. And so, beloved, this is what awaits us as believers, as redeemed. This is what we are supposed to be tasting now in the life of the church. We have the Spirit of Christ in our midst now. The nations are coming in now. This is why Will and Sorella are where they are. Right? To go to the nations. And let's not forget, it started closer to them than it did us. We're the nations, right? God is dwelling with His people, but we have not yet reached the final state. Christ has justified His people, but He has not yet brought the full justice to those that are not His people. 
And when he does, when he returns, he teaches, Jesus does in Matthew 25, he will separate the sheep from the goat. We might say the citizens of Jerusalem and the citizens of Babylon. The new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven to earth where he makes all things new and he will dwell, we will dwell with him forever in unhindered joy because the dwelling place of God is with man. And then we will sing and rejoice forever. And so just a final thought here. If this is how God sees His people, if this is what He has done, if this is what He is doing and will do for His people, if we, His people, are the apple of God's eye, and He wants no one to touch us because we're His, if He's making for us a new Jerusalem, then how should we look at each other? How should we love each other? Brothers and sisters, the church should be the one place on planet Earth where all these amazing realities are beginning to come together. Kind of preview of coming attractions. With justice having already been satisfied for our sins by grace in love, we show then grace, right? We show grace to each other. We recognize that every member of Christ's church stands to inherit some acreage in New Jerusalem. All of us do. We got land deeds in Christ, as it were. We're all going to dwell there together. So in love, we then love each other. Since that's the way God sees us, that's how we see each other. So we weep with those that weep. We mourn with those that mourn. We laugh with those that laugh. We do life together because we're going to do life together in heaven. And we do it in hope here in the church because we are fellow citizens of the new Jerusalem. That's, that's our passport. That's what it says. It's not this current earth. We are the apple of God's eye. And so therefore, we are at ease. Not with this world. We are at ease with the world to come. This world is at ease in this world. That's not us. We're not seeking ease here. We're seeking ease there. So we are easy now because we know what's coming. So I'm going to end this and kind of pull all this together by telling a brief story. Uh, Sandy Ray was a pastor of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, largely mid-19th century. African-American church, he preached a sermon one time where I listened to that brought these themes together so well. Sandy Ray tells a story of how the fact he was on this ministry leadership council and he goes to Washington, D.C. from Brooklyn, New York, and he walks into Washington and all these people come in and they brief these spiritual, these pastoral leaders. And they tell them all the dangers that they're facing today. All the difficulties that are going on. And Sandy Ray gets incensed. He gets worried. He gets concerned. He gets angry about all the injustices, about all the wrongs, about all the danger that's on the horizon. And so he leaves Washington and he goes back to his church. And he happens to be getting back into Brooklyn, New York, and Cornerstone Baptist Church at the same time as a prayer meeting. He walks into this prayer meeting and he tells the story. You should go listen to us on YouTube. He tells it much better than me. He walks into this and here they are. He said they're in there. Singing, praying, testifying. Happy, joyful. And Sandy Ray stands up in front of them and internally, he can't say anything to his church, but internally he looks at them and goes, these people don't understand. They're in here praising, having joy, laughing and enjoying one another. These people don't understand what's coming. I know what's coming. They shouldn't be up here praying and testifying. Bitterness in his heart. And he said, about that time, there's a woman by the name of Miss Middleton Remember, a long time member of the church. He said she comes out in the middle of the road and she begins to dance. Come down the last aisle. Coming down. 
And Miss Middleton, Sandy Ray says, Miss Middleton starts dancing and she says, I ain't uneasy, Lord. I ain't uneasy. I got my ticket. I'm bound for glory. Sandy Ray says after that, his heart began to leap as he watched Miss Middleton come down that row. And he said, Miss Middleton has news that Washington doesn't have. She's got connections, he said. And as a result of that, she can be at ease in the midst of an uneasy world. So can we. So can we. We can find ease in the world to come, though we live uneasy now. Mrs. Middleton teaches that today. No matter the terrible injustices of the world, the Lord sees. We are the apple of his eye. He is making it right. We have the news that the world, most of the world doesn't have. And so it's our responsibility to go and tell them about it. To bring them in so that they would have that citizenship and live in the new Jerusalem with us singing his praises. Take hope, beloved. Take hope. Justice is coming. And so is the new Jerusalem. And we will be there soon enough. Enjoying it with him forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice that no wrongdoing goes unpaid. We rejoice that you are a God of love, therefore you are a God of justice. And you faithfully administer that justice. And Lord, we rejoice that while we were due to be served by that justice, in Christ, those of us that believe have been rescued from it. And not only have we been rescued from it, in Christ you put your anger down on Him instead of us. It should have come to us. And now we have tasted the heavenly gift here in the life together of the church. And now we, who are so often uneasy, can rest at ease, as Miss Middleton reminds us, because we're bound for glory. Our citizenship is in Jerusalem. And she will come soon enough. Hasten the day, Lord God, we pray. But until then, may we be resolved to make known the good news of Jesus Christ and welcome others in that they too might participate with us singing your praises. Thank you, God, that the prophet Zechariah spoke of this so many years ago. Thank you, God, that you have satisfied so many of those promises so therefore we we can trust that the day is going to come soon enough. Be glorified. Be magnified in our midst as we look forward to dwelling in that heavenly city with you forever and ever. Amen.